Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to Foment About, about it. it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your hosts to this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Mary and I are fresh back from Philadelphia Beer Week where she had her first event uh, pushing her book. What's your book, Mary? My book is Speed Brewing, <laughs> and uh, it is actually officially out on June 15th. It's available for pre-order currently from book retailers online as well as brick and mortar. Um, it should be available at, at most homebrew stores as well as regular all-purpose book stores. Um, and it's basically about fast-fermented alcoholic beverages. It's a DIY. I do have one beer chapter that focuses on uh, brewing a bag sessionable ales that ferment fast and then i also have ciders short meads far-flung fermentations worldwide fermentations Spirited boozy sodas. booch yeah anyway it's a fun, it was a it's a lot of fun to write and um it's really about my passion for um some of these beverages that we've been making all over and people continue to make all over the world that are just designed to be fermented pretty fast low lower in alcohol generally and drink fresh drunk fresh drink fresh I have to look that up every time, and I can never remember which one. What, drunk or drank? Yeah. You did say flued earlier. Today. I know. You said there was a flued warning with this rain. <laughs> we are uh, here, in, here in Brooklyn, New York. We're actually in the middle of a flash flood warning, so it is fluting out as we speak. Uh, um, anyway, but I, a huge thanks to my uh, publishers, Quarto, who um, brought myself and Ashley Routson, who wrote her own book, The Beer Wench's Guide, Unpretentious Guide to... Unprinted's Guide to Beer. We have mm-hmm. a copy in, in, uh, at home. Um, so Ashley and I participated in the opening tap event of Philly Beer Week, which was on Friday night at the Armory in Philadelphia, as well as the Great Beer Expo, which is a great uh, beer festival put on by Starfish Junctions um, on Saturday. So we sold and signed some copies of books and got to, to taste some really nice uh, Philadelphia beer and cider, actually, and mead. So huge congratulations right. to our friend, uh, our friends Adam and Aaron Crockett, who just opened a meadery called Haymaker Meadery. So we got awesome stuff. The lemon yeah. basil, lemon basil mead and strawberry cracking. vanilla. So mm-hmm. they're making some a- absolutely amazing um, meads, carbonated meads on draft currently um, in Pennsylvania. So that was a lot of fun and right up our alley. But Philadelphia isn't all about Mary's book. It's about <laughs> it's about uh, this Philly, Philly beer week's been going strong. It's a really awesome event. There are numerous numerous events throughout the week. It's happening right now and goes on through next weekend, the seventh Sunday, the seventh. And I plan to return. Mary's out of town, so I'm uh, I'm going back to Philly, and uh, maybe I'll see you guys there. Yeah, it's definitely something if you're in the the Northeast, um, something to get to. There's and it's it's really cool because there's so many events. I feel like we did we went to a bar yesterday, Memphis Tap Room to uh, celebrate 
uh, half acre and tired hands. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too crowded. It was very nice, and we got to taste some good beers and meet Happy anniversary of Tired Hands. It's their third anniversary today. They're having an anniversary party for the first location. Gene's doing that. All right, so we are in the studio with, uh, as you probably know, if you if you are caught up on our shows, we were recently in Portland, Oregon for the Craft Brewers Conference, but we also went uh, tasted a lot of other wonderful fermented beverages and foods. And one of the fun things that we did is um, I went to Revnat Cider. He had was guest ho- or was hosting a bunch of other Oregon cider makers. So not only did I get to taste a really amazing variety. Um, of Oregon made ciders, but I got to meet some of the cider makers, and one of them is in the studio with us. So, Kevin Zielinski from Easy Orchards, welcome. Thank you. I'm <laughs> glad to be here. Thanks for yeah. coming out. Hey. And then we're also in the studio with Alex Forbes, who works for Artisanal. Right. Who is distributing Kevin's ciders here. We Yeah, we are uh, representing them over across the country, helping spread the love. Awesome. Yes. And so... Um, so, Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, your Easy Orchards is in, is in Salem. Correct. Um, Easy Orchards is a family business, um, orcharding for several generations. The EZ is actually my grandfather's initials, Edward Zielinski. Uh-huh. So, it isn't about how comfortably we sit around watching work happen. It's somebody's name. <laughs> I thought it was an NWA tribute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So sponsored by Easy Pass. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So we are an orchard operation. Uh, we've historically been farming and growing tree fruits for fresh sale. And starting about the year 2000, I was offered some French bittersweet apple scion wood to start growing. And that was my first step into the cider trade as far as a fermented cider product goes. Cool. So what? how many trees did you plant back then and what what were the varieties well at that point the very small start of that was one acre of 300 trees and there were 11 different um varieties of um french and one english and one early american apple variety so all in total it was 11 different varieties and you planted them specifically for making cider? For this, yeah. Actually, we planted the rootstocks and then budded onto the rootstocks because we had to take scion woods. They, we couldn't purchase the trees. They, it was actually a source from another older orchard. Okay. Mm-hmm. So explain what that means to people that don't know anything about apple growing. Well, I mean, this is an ancient process of how you can propagate apples, pears, roses, you know, many types of plants where you would take what we call the understock which would be the part of the tree coming out of the ground and onto that you can graft which would be taking a piece of the wood of the variety you want to grow and slipping it in there behind the bark taping it and waxing it so moisture and air doesn't get in there and it will knit together and grow the process of budding is taking a smaller piece of that with just the bud on the on the branch Mm -hmm. and just slipping that behind there and doing that in september august of the of the summer and it rests through the winter and starts growing in the spring and that's a way of basically enabling you to grow these varieties of apples that you want to grow onto existing rootstock well either on existing rootstock, rootstock that you're going to plant right or you can propagate trees rapidly because a one branch say three feet long is going to give you the opportunity to bud you know 20 okay possibly 15 to 20 so it accelerates the opportunity if you don't have much scion wood available. 
And the reason, the other reason, we've talked about this on the show before with um, other cider makers, but is that you can't reliably uh, produce the same apple from a seed. It just doesn't work that way. So you have to use this for this type of exactly of way to maintain your the apples that you right. want to grow. If you, to propagate a true variety, you you need to take a piece of that and propagate it. The seed will not produce it. Cool. From the fruit, yes. And then, um, how many or how many acres do you have now? Have you expanded on that, or the cider part of the orchard? Um, if I were to consider just the bittersweet varieties, is that about twelve acres? Okay. And then we also grow about a hundred and fifty acres of pears, apples, peaches, and hazelnuts. Cool. So you have these mostly bittersweet varieties, which were mostly French. Mm-hmm. And so, what uh, what happened when okay, so you've you know you've planted these trees and you're waiting for them to produce fruit? So, what did you do to learn about cider making? Well, initially, the process was to grow fruit for a winemaking friend. Okay. Uh, my history with fermenting started with winemaking. I live in the Willamette Valley, and we have wonderful grapes available to us there. And this person had asked me to produce some fruit for him on trees since I was the orchardist and he was the winemaker. He wasn't an orchardist. It wasn't but a couple of years into the process after we'd budded the trees that he was no longer able to follow this project. He took a position in a winery in another state. I was already starting to experiment with fermenting apples at mm-hmm. that point because the fruit's there and you got to see what you can do. <laughs> and, yep. and I was very attracted to more traditional fermentation styles as I had been in winemaking as well. And that led me down the path. So I approached it very much from a winemaker's perspective. And I mean, fruit is fruit, whether it's a grape or an apple. And then I just had to adapt processes that worked to maintain my ideal of what I think cider making should be for me. And um, produce fruit. Cool. What are some of the ciders that influenced you? Uh, to be very honest, I had not tasted but a handful of ciders before doing this. Uh, there wasn't a lot available in my, our part of the country at that time. So the few I had sampled had never really sent me running to buy more. <laughs> For perspective, uh, how many how many cideries are in, in, uh, in Oregon now? Oh, I, I can't be completely accurate, but we're probably right around, it's not going to be a safe guess, but around <laughs> 25 to 30, possibly. More like the 25 zone. What? Yeah. It's probably closer to 30, but I'll find that number out. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will correct me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's try this as a cider. Yeah. So yeah. tell us about, before we get more into kind of how what traditional cider making mm-hmm. you know means coming from a wine perspective we just opened the uh, roman beauty cider so tell us a little bit about this sure roman beauty is a i i call it a north american style pre pre-prohibition cider so this is a cider it's made from predominantly um the roman beauty apple which is a north american cultivar that was um, been propagated and and used in the united states and in north america since probably the middle of the 19th century, maybe a little earlier than that. The name um, comes from its origin in Rome, Ohio. But somebody became romantic and started to call it the Roman Beauty Apple, and it works pretty well. <laughs> and it, it, I think it's very nice for the title of the of the product. So this is a very um, sessionable, approach, approachable cider. Um, there's a little bit of a blend of some other tart variety of apple, a French bittersweet to bring up the tannin load gives it a little more mouth feel, and a little bit of golden delicious. Um, it has a nice aromatic character, mm-hmm. so it's a very um, approachable cider 
lower alcohol, 4.2. So it goes easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. How do you, how long does it take you to figure out your blends for your, for your ciders? Well, c- cider making for me is a seasonal event. Mm-hmm. So I may make several different batches in a vintage of a specific combination of blends, but it's not like I do it again next month and then, you know, so I have to have a pretty good dial in of what I want to do and then take some chances. Yeah. Cause I can't start with a five or 10 gallon test batch. And then once it's finished after three and a half, four and a half month ferment say, okay, now I know what I'm going to do with the rest of those apples right. because it's, too late <laughs> you gotta go for it when the apple's yeah. ready you gotta right do your so pressing. it's yeah so i need to understand through my um experiences as 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 a cider maker also as a fruit grower what kind of aromatics come out of fruit what the acid feels like how mature i want the fruit to be at harvest all the dynamics that go into fermentation um need to be considered so the idea starts maybe a year before two yeah. years before uh, but the actual assembly is definitely, you know, a shorter curve and a little bit of from the hip. So let's take take us through your typical process in the fall. Yeah. So you you have a press? Actually, I do, do not you? use our own press. All of okay. our cider is produced at a winery. Okay. So we're very fortunate to be in an area where there are wineries available that will allow the use of their space. Mm-hmm. It's also a benefit for the winery due to the fact that there's a lot of equipment that is sitting idle most of the year after right. grape harvest, and I can refrigerate my fruit till after the heavy you know, push of the grape harvest. Mm-hmm. So I'll refrigerate till maybe December, and they're happy to have somebody using the equipment then. It's good for both of us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the apples are harvested, and then they're refrigerated. Correct, yeah. Um, is there any kind of special treatment that you're doing no. during that time, just straight up? Right. The, well, the, the most important thing is harvest maturity. Okay. So when I want fruit to be tree mature but not so ripe that it's going to go soft before i can crush it Mm -hmm. Uh, i want to make sure that i'm allowing the best aromatic characteristics to develop on the fruit while on the tree but also that it's sustained through cold storage Mm -hmm. and then um, for instance in acid varieties which i don't use very much acid fruit in our cider i want those that fruit to be more mature so it's not a hard acid, but it's a mellower, round acid. And I don't know if that's just an adjustment of the residual sugar in the fruit or if it's actually the acids changing. Somebody can help me with that someday. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you're also concerned. About, how concerned are you about sugar level with your apples? The only real concern I have is that the fruit is mature enough and that the sugars are, will, they will be readily convertible. It's easy to convert that type of sugar and fermentation. I'm not looking for a big cider. Something over 7% is not my goal. If mm-hmm. I can be anywhere between four and a half and five and a half, six and a half tops, I'm happy. Because I want cider to be very approachable from a relaxed, easy, consumable thing, something that's refreshing. Um, and with my process, the residual sugar that's in the cider is not from back sweetening. That is unfermented sugars from the fruit. It started at the same ferment time. So it's not an addition that comes in later. So I'm never going to consume all the sugars that are in the fruit. So it's going to be hard to push a high alcohol level. Okay. Especially with a semi-dry style cider like the Roman Beauty. Mm-hmm. Then what was I going to ask next? I don't know. How do you stop? So you don't stop the fermentation at all or do you cold crash? and No. It's, it's going 
it's, and it's going, it's alive, and you're yeah, not filtering anything either, right? No, this is uh, very old school. So yeah. one of the key elements of this is that um, the nutrients that are available in the fruit encourage fermentation. And mm-hmm. if I have trees that are older or I manage those trees to not have a high nutrient load, what that allows is that the ferment is more relaxed. It's not as aggressive. gives me the opportunity to protract ferment for many months, maybe three and a half, four and a half, up to five months. And during that process, the nutrients are stressed because mm-hmm. of a cool, maybe 40-degree Fahrenheit ferment temperature and the nutrients and the yeast stress. And so I can finish the cider with a natural residual sugar that's left from the initial juice that started the ferment um, without having to crash it right. or pasteurize it or sterile filter it. It just, uh, it just ends. Or it, yeah. You know, kind of, they decide when they're done in a very relaxed pace. And, and <laughs> well, they're not <laughs> completely done. So they will be alive. They can be alive for years. Mm-hmm. However, if they don't have nutrients, they're going to peter out. But right. this allows me to go into the bottle and produce a naturally carbonated product. Yeah. By aging it in the bottle. And a longer, slower carbonation absorption into the cider gives me a very small, well-absorbed, tight bubble structure that lasts longer on the palate. With that, we're going to take a really quick break. We're here with uh, Kevin Zielinski of Easy Orchard Ciders. For Minibot. L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Ferment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're here in the studio with Kevin Zielinski of Easy Orchard Cider, and also Alex Forbes of Artisanal, who uh, represents the brand uh, through the world. That's right. And through <laughs> perpetuity. Alex, you were bringing up uh, texture uh, over yeah. the break and, and the unique texture that Easy Orchards have in, in, uh, in your experience to other yeah, ciders. Yeah, that's kind of cool that for me, um, especially with this, uh, the Cidre Dry, is the leading, most exciting aspect of the cider is the texture and the mouthfeel rather than the sweetness or the dryness or the 
funkiness or whatever you know you get from a lot of other nice ciders. This actually is kind of texture led, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool and unique. And we're getting that a lot from that from that residual sugar that comes from that very slow ferment, yeah. and uh, and and also the bubbles that that are from the natural carbonation. I agree. Yeah, it's a combination of factors. Uh, the cider specifically, like the cider dry or cider dry, yes, is um, not a high acid cider. It's very you know tan and rich, low acid. Mm-hmm. So what gives it its its um, strength when most of the sugars are fermented away? Because it is a fairly dry cider. It's that tannin structure. It's that slow bubble absorbing process. So it gives it a creamier feel on the palate. So you're not just tasting something that's dry and it strips. Right. It actually is, you know, giving you, it's like a dry cheese. It's like, well, why does it still feel good in there? Right. You know, why is that? Work? I want more. It's yeah, perception. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we were talking about, so you were pressing. Now, are you blending going into the press or are you, you know, um, Fermenting single varietals and then right. blending after, or are you doing both? No. Uh, I mean, on a rare occasion, I may blend a little bit after or during ferment, but mm-hmm. the blend, the initial blend is at press. Okay. So the fruit will be washed, goes through the mill and into the press, and we're pressing about, oh, anywhere between fifteen and 16,000 pounds per press load. So it could just be all one variety in that load. Mm-hmm. But, however, when I'm building, say, well, if, if I'm going to ferment 3,000 gallons in one tank, that blend is all accomplished into that within a day or two. Okay. You know? And then you're not adding any yeast. These are all naturally fermented. Is that correct? They're or? all spontaneous ferments. And I have never yet, in all my years of fermenting, pitched a yeast on wine or cider. Wow. Cool. So as many people have shaken their head at me and say, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. And unpasteurized as well. And unpasteurized. Yeah. Right. I mean... It's fun to be Another a little bit no, of a no. rebel. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, for those of you out there who haven't had Easy Orchard, so as we mentioned, we're drinking um, a bottle of the Roman Beauty. And there isn't, I mean, it has, it's not like a funky Spanish cidre or, mm-hmm. you know, some of the French ciders that are funkier. It's, it's r- very smooth and delicious. Not, it has a ba- you know, really nice semi-sweet. Palate, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Very Thank f- you. kind of a little bit floral. It has still mm-hmm. retains a, a decent amount of apple character, actually. Thank you. So... Really lovely. So we're not talking about, you're not getting these crazy, funky, you know, well, ciders. A little I bit mean, a little bit, but not that. like anything extreme. There, It's all very right. it's beautiful. It's extremely so. balanced. Thank yeah, you. extremely yeah. balanced. Absolutely. Now, I'll be very honest about this. I do not have full control if that's how it's going to really. Right. You know, I mean, I'm waiting for the well, day. Did the, wait for the, a year in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, it's, happen? yeah, things happen. You know, however, there are stabilizing effects to the CO2 production. Mm-hmm. to that relaxed finishing of the ferment in the bottle. So, so far, following the tradition of, you know, northern European cider makers that did this with confidence and the potential loss of product occasionally, mm-hmm. I'm going to continue down this path because I find it pleasing, yeah. you know, to make cider like this and to have a nuance of, you know, a Britannomyces effect on it or, you know, other things that actually, in my opinion, bring something else to the experience of a cider. Yeah. You know, 
Absolutely. I think it's a little different in, in that, you know, I think as if you're coming from like a craft beer perspective and you think of spontaneous fermentation, you automatically think, oh, it's going to be this funky, sour, you know, right. in your face. beverage. Yeah. yeah. And then a lot, some of the natural wines tend to go that way, although there are a lot more natural wines that are also, I would say, kind of run parallel to this, that are using the natural processes and natural yeast and are very, you know, have a little bit of funk maybe, but are very smooth and balanced and beautiful. So I, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's awesome. So. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> and you spoke a moment ago about, uh, you know, aging it for a year or sitting down on things. How do you, how do you feel about aging your ciders? And uh, have you, do you still have bottles of your first batch? And how have they grown oh, yeah. over the years? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a farmer. We have places to put things. You save <laughs> yeah. things. You save things you wish you never would have or you, things you find many years later and say, I guess I still have that. Uh, the What was the exact question again? <laughs> uh, Treating your cider when you, when you age, where do you store your cider? How, oh, okay. how does how how's your your first batch of cider taste now? Interestingly, or has the first changed? commercial batch of cider I produced um, was the 2009 vintage, and I'd mm-hmm. been making cider since 2003, since I had the first fruit off of the um, the English, I mean the French oh, bittersweet fruit, and there was a small amount of English in there, and was very happy with how it was working. But these were all like five gallon, you know, sure. ferments, so things are. You know, fermentation kinetics are a lot different when you go in larger volume. But, however, the 2009, on first impression, carried a bit of a of a funk on it that most people weren't yet familiar with in cider, unless mm-hmm. they'd been to Europe, you know, continental Europe and said, oh, that's what cider should be like. So it didn't reach the market real easily at first. Um, at this point in its life, and I still have some of it set aside, I think it's drinking beautifully. I, it's dried out a little more. The funk has subsided a pinch but there is such a creamy well-absorbed texture to it yeah. it is a mouth i mean you look how most true champagnes it's three years i believe before they can even release it to market to make you know to be qualified and that develops that mousse that very yeah. nice mouthfeel so cider will age however important it isn't going to really age if it's been pasteurized. It's not alive. Mm-hmm. Or needs, filtered. Right. Well, you or, can use a small amount yeah, of filtration. Ex- yeah, but, filtered but, completely. Yeah, exactly. The The key here is, you know, if it's alive, it's got somewhere to go. If it's dead, where's it going? You Absolutely. Know? So talking about um, champagne, how are you bottle conditioning? Well, this is what we call a uh, process, an old process called petalant natural. So it goes into the bottle at the later stage of ferment, and it may not be late as far as consuming all the sugar in the fruit. However, the ferments have relaxed and slowed down. We go into the bottle, and it's essentially it's a continuation of the primary ferment in the bottle. Closed off the crown cap, and over five, six months, by that, usually by the time of five or six months after bottling, I may have a you know, product I can put on market, but at, usually it's better at about seven, eight months. And so if... We talk about cider appreciation. I'm happy with a cider that's been sitting around for 18 months. Mm-hmm. From a economic standpoint, that's not the best model. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice way to say it. Because <laughs> you're sitting on a lot of product. But right. the product's appreciable. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. What about in a keg? In a keg? Would you give it the same of course. time period to mature or, or continue to ferment yeah. before re- release? Yeah, I'm experimenting with that now. Uh, a keg, whether, regardless of the size of it, as long as it's totally anaerobic, holds the pressure, is a big bottle. And I've yeah. been doing this long yeah. enough to know that a bottle is a bottle. 
and whatever type of closures on it or however you get it out is one thing but if it can do it in a small bottle it can do it in a bigger bottle yeah absolutely so uh we had talked chris and that's one thing chris and i like to do is pair beer whatever we're drinking be it mm-hmm. beer cider or wine um with foods what do you what do you recommend for your for pairing ciders i think a lot of people are used to you know some of the larger produced ciders out there that mm-hmm. are more sweet and not really um the same type of beverages at what you're producing and right and many more and more other cider makers are producing across the country um so i think pe- a lot of people don't think about breaking open a bottle of cider with their dinner or or a meal or um, right. something. So what? how about some tips on that? I, these ciders that I produce are, you know, they're, some of them are rather unique from each other, so there's not like a blanket recommendation I would make. But, for instance, the Cedar Dry is, um, the dryness of it allows it to pair well with food because you're not competing. It doesn't cloy on the palate. So, for instance, a, one of the ways I like to enjoy it is at breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. you, you not every day um, but however if you take like just a, end with why yeah a leek tart you know <laughs> you make a leek tart with shoved cheese in it or even an omelet with you know some kale or um and shoved cheese or a, a nice dry aged gouda and then have something like that with that richness with the drier cider i think it's a beautiful round experience on the palate you awesome. know and toasted, you know, like toasted walnuts. Um, I love toasted walnuts. I think they're very healthy, but I also think they are nice because there's that little bit of a um, tannic acridness mm-hmm. to them that I think with the sweeter ciders, semi-dry ciders, there's like a wake-up in between those. One allows the other one to recognize each other on the palate, you know. So just for a simple thing to enjoy, you know, I, I like to do that. The, the Hawkhouse cider, which is... A North American style cider using predominantly Jonathan Apple mm-hmm. is a fairly dry cider, and I call it near to dry. This cider I find works very well with um, Latin American food and Southeast Asian food. So a little spicier or exactly. zestier. It gives it a freshness. It has a nice. It has a, definitely a higher acid um, profile, and so it's it's a very refreshing cider, but it doesn't have the you know, it doesn't, it doesn't stand by the cedar dry and say, we're the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we have different opportunities to enjoy it, you know? Yeah. I love it. I love these. <laughs> I love these. Absolutely. And then I, one other thing that we had talked about um, when I was out in Portland is kind of talking about tasting and judging ciders. Mm-hmm. And I know, um, I think that's one thing as I've um, run a cup, you know, Chris and I ran the first rounds of AHA and we've helped participate in judge coordinating with other competitions, just speaking about beer competitions. But from that experience and other experiences out there, I feel like a lot of people, even if they understand how to judge other beverages, really don't know what to do with cider. They have no, um, you know, they don't have a foundation of cider tasting. Now we're kind of in this cider renaissance in this country, so we have all kinds of ciders um, being produced, whether they are, you know, these traditional natural methods like you are making or somebody like Rev Nat, who's using, you know, a lot of flavors and doing some things like um, tapache. And he's you a know, modern, modern yeah, cider. Absolutely. That is he, that is his term. I mean, he coins that about himself. Um, Nat is a modern cider maker, which leaves a lot of opportunity to expound upon what's available now with fermentation styles and additions. Absolutely. And I think I think that's cool because then people that don't have access to 
the apples that maybe we do in New York or you're growing mm-hmm. in Oregon um, can still make some really fun drinkable ciders. Yeah. I know oh, there's a, ho- a lot of hop ciders. Um, so there's a, all these different ciders, and I really love. I mean, I we had a delicious um, honey pepper cider actually from Pennsylvania this weekend that was really nice. Again, I would that's definitely a modern cider, mm-hmm. but it was really delicious and balanced. So I think there's room for all of these, but it's really hard to to kind of develop one's palate, I guess, and really know how to approach them. So what do you recommend for people that are just getting started or getting into cider more and and haven't had very much experience? I'll share my experience with learning how to appreciate wine, and then you know my growth in appreciating the diverse, you know, array of beers that are out there mm-hmm. as well. Experience. And I tend to not follow who has won an award or what cider has won an award. Um, the potential of my own discernment gives me a greater opportunity than be expecting something because the product that I'm sampling, whether it's a food or a cider, has been given a mark of approval by an award ceremony. I would prefer to approach it myself. Now, that expands the learning curve, takes more time. Mm-hmm. However, we're, we're always in such a hurry. So maybe this weekend I'll take home one or two ciders that I'm not familiar with. And at the end of the weekend, I will know how I feel about them. Yeah, cool. I mean, that, Absolutely. That, that, that's all part of the life, you know? I agree. I mean, and I think that was one thing um, when we were out in Oregon, not only going to Revnat's event, but we also stopped by Bushwhacker Cider. Yes. And they have they had several other uh, local ciders on draft as well and a huge bottle selection. Oh, so excellent. that's, you know, yeah. personally several what we... kind of an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah it's, it's a phenomenal place, <laughs> Bushwhacker yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And that was a great opportunity. She did flights. They did flights mm-hmm. there. So we got to taste, um, I think it was, I don't know, eight or ten different <clears throat> ciders. I have to look right. back. Um, you know, at once in, in flights. And then we have Wassail here, which yes. is our new um, cider bar that's cider bar slash restaurant um that is opened by the couple ben and jennifer that that um ha- own queen's no. kickshaw correct so they just opened wassail that's our uh on orchard street on the lower east side and that is also a great you know pe- we're lucky in new york and you know in port oregon to have these places where you can go experience cider but a lot of people don't have access true but i think you know if you if you go out there, try, you know, seek out, if you're interested in learning about cider, seek out these places and also bottles of cider and really, you know, you're absolutely right, really try it. I know there is at least one book on tasting cider that is um, in the works um, and maybe more, I'm sure, since ciders are becoming more popular. Uh, but, you know, education is a great thing. Yeah. And if you're not finding enough availability, ask your favorite bottle shop. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, say, hey, you know, I know a happen. handful of people, or I know a armload of people that are interested in cider do you mind you know talking to your distributor and seeing about bringing a few more and then encourage them about some you've read about i mean self-edification i mean reading and learning about it helps the whole process too yeah absolutely you know? and you bring that to your local distributor or your local bottle shop or your local retail and Everybody grows in the experience. Yep. And more and more bars have a dedicated cider line as well and more cider yeah. selection. So, right. you know, if you have a local bar that you like, ask them to carry a, the cider oh, as yes. well, either on draft or in the bottle. So, right. Um, and then uh, the other thing, I think there's more opportunities. Like, we're actually, I'm going to participate. I'm going to give a seminar on, you know, kind of what I call city ciders. So, these home brewed ciders. Um, in two weeks at Pour the Core, which is a cider festival here in Brooklyn, put mm-hmm. on by Starfish Junction. So I know there's more cider festivals out there and other opportunities. So definitely keep your eye. The Hawkhouse will be there. 
Wonderful. Awesome. At, at Pour the cool. Core, yeah. Great. Yeah. See, we have, seen. we have Alex. Is He's the guy that's coming in between what we yeah. do on the production side mm-hmm. and the pe- people who will consume this who learn about it. And Alex and his trade is out there plying the trade of try this. Give yeah. this a shot. Let yeah, that's, know what that's you our big sales pitch, too. It's like, yeah. just open this up and try this. Yeah. You know, I'll let you think about it and enjoy it first before I tell you what kind of apples are used or how strong it is. But exactly. That's the best marketing that there is. Yeah. So where else? Yep. So you're selling your ciders in Oregon. Yes. And now you just came to New You're just launching in New York City, correct? Well, not just launching. The Roman Beauties recently, very recently arrived in New York. The um, We've been on this, you know, on the shelf here for how long would you estimate? Seven, eight months, Alex? Is that about right? Yeah. But it's, but it's, you know, I mean, uh, coming into a, a year. Yeah, close to a year. It, Roman Beauty and Semi Dry are two weeks in. Yeah. So those okay. are very fresh, brand new. Yeah. So, and, and remember, the, the Roman Beauty that we tasted, that is from the 2013 um, crop. Crop. Mm-hmm. So you can see how long it takes yeah. to, yeah. <laughs> to make amazing. things happen. I mean, I look at things as a vintage relative, vintage specific. I mm-hmm. won't, I don't put that on the label because there are reasons why we're not allowed to. However, this is about an orchard. This is about allowing the apple to speak in the way I feel best of what its capability is as a fermented product. Awesome. That's beautiful. So vintage yeah. to vintage will be different. I mean, oh, every, yeah. every year is a different growing season. Yep. Right. You know? And that should be exp- – I mean, there's, there's a beauty to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. On You're welcome. Alex, thanks for, thanks for making things happen. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You guys make the world taste better. Oh, (laughs) that's a compliment. Thank you. I accept that. (laughs) Where can we find out more information of Easy Orchards? Your website is easyorchards.com? Yes, it is. Uh, That website address will lead you to our farm market, and there's a link in there for the cider. I am working on developing a cider-specific website for Easy Orchard Cider. So that will soon be up and going, and it will be able to have easier access for people that are not searching for, you know, the rest of the things that are happening on the farm, perhaps. Maybe they just want to know about cider. Sure. You know? Artisanalimports.com has uh, some nice information about the, all, all your varieties, mm-hmm. too. Awesome. Yeah. In it's fact, easy to navigate. Yeah. And I suggest easy, that. Like easy or Boom. Yeah. <laughs> easy E to navigate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the easy pass. <laughs> Get your easy pass out and hit the website now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I already said goodbye, sort of. <laughs> can I say say, can I say two quick things? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Tomorrow absolutely. night we're doing a, tomorrow a, night an is event actually at tonight. Uh, Owl Farm. Today. <laughs> actually, yeah, what happened? <laughs> we're recording we're on too Sunday, much fun. we're airing tomorrow on tonight, uh, Monday. Tonight, tonight, tonight <laughs> at the Owl Farm. We're doing an anti-tap takeover. It's a new thing that I've never done before. It's a basically a bottle takeover. Nice. Okay. And they're going to have three of Kevin's ciders available by the glass. Cool. Awesome. Which is very cool. Another advantage of your fermentation technique. This stuff keeps its carbonation very well, so nicer places are doing by the glass. Yeah, and then Tuesday night is a five-course easy dinner at Wasail. Oh, awesome! Fantastic. Should be very cool. So Tickets still available right now. You can still make it. Come find us at the Owl Farm right now, <laughs> or tomorrow at Wasail. <laughs> we're there. We're we're filming. We're recording this from the Owl Farm. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, we'll be back next Monday with Fomen about it. Fomen about it. Fomen about it. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.